I'm Jeff Saperstein, co-author with Hunter Hastings of the book, The Interconnected Individual, Seizing Opportunity in the Era of AI Platforms, Apps, and Global Exchanges. As an interconnected individual, you want to know how cutting-edge thinking can help you design, implement, manage, and enjoy your own individual economy. Today, we're talking with Richard Straub, president of the global Peter Drucker Forum, which is a yearly management conference held this year, November 29th to 30th in Vienna. Richard had an illustrious career with IBM and is a senior advisor to the IBM Global Education Council and vice chair of the Open Innovation Strategy and Policy Group. We will discuss how Richard views AI for enterprise and individual opportunity and how you can better understand the future of work. So let's begin. Hello, Richard. Thank you for this interview. Richard, can you speak to who Peter Drucker was and his influence on management science? Thank you, thank you, Jeff. Um, Peter Drucker is often called the father of modern management. Why is this so? Uh, because he was the first one to, who took a comprehensive view on management. There was already a lot going on uh, to develop concepts and ideas and tools that can be used uh, for management purposes, but nobody has looked at management in a systemic and systematic way overall. And I think that was the first thing that comes to mind when we say, what has Peter Drucker brought in terms of new uh, approaches? Um, and the other point I would make, because you asked me about management science, I think uh, we need to remember today that he did not consider management as a science. He thought management was closer to a liberal art, and liberal arts than science. And that was also a characteristic of Peter Drucker, because he understood that in management, many disciplines play together. And um, it's from uh, humanities uh, to social sciences, all sorts of disciplines, which in some way uh, need to be incorporated if you want to um, get a comprehensive perspective of what management really means in society. Thank you. That, that's, that's great. And as we've discussed, um, he was able to be... Uh, articulate a North Star for many of us who are affected by Peter Drucker um, and uh, it clearly was a giant uh, of his time with, with great influence. Um, I encourage everybody to read the uh, effective executive and many of Peter Drucker's books which are still relevant today. Richard, you've written, the human perspective has been increasingly sidelined in the way we think about and enact the relations between technology and society, leaving the most precious human potential and undervalued and underused. Um, can you explain that and uh, tell us what you mean by that? Well, I mean, the when I had my discussions, my precious moments, uh, with uh, Peter Drucker's widow, with Doris, uh, after having uh, after having established the Drucker Society in Europe and started with the Drucker Forum, I had this great opportunity to meet her many times. And when I asked her what was really most important for Peter Drucker, 
she said a human being there was not the slightest uh, question he was he really cared in in all things in little things and in big things and um today when you look at the discussion and, and silicon valley may be a good example but not only right um, you get a lot of technology discussion you get a lot of perspectives from the technology side uh, but sometimes you have the impression is anybody really thinking about the human being in this context what do i mean with that uh, we all became experts more or less for technology um, many people especially with an engineering background um, they uh, you know they, they go deeply into these subjects and you can hear the passionate discussion what you can do with self-driving cars and how how you will reach technology surpassing the human being uh, like mr Kurzweil, uh, you know preaches uh, in in a certain number of years from now uh, and and all this gives the impression has anybody really thought what the human being is all about has anybody given deeper thought about the question if the human mind is in any way close to a computer or a computer any way close to the human mind so um, the point is here that we seem to get lost into a, an enthusiasm for technology which is fine i mean i'm not against uh, i've worked for ibm 32 years so i'm not against technology far from uh, but i'm i'm for technology in a completely in a completely different uh, um, in a different sense that means um, understanding the limits the limitations of technology which are when you think about it obvious and trying to understand again the huge and often unmet potential of the human being that's one point but maybe you want to cover other aspects as well well it's excellent um i'd like to drill down a little bit more richard in your um i know you have a passionate interest in education uh, so you talk about leaving the most precious human potential undervalued and underused. And clearly there are many people who are suffering in this era of being undervalued and underused. And we, we could go there, but I, I would really like to hear where you see education, training, upskilling, the, the, the positive side of where this can go so that the potential is valued and utilized rather than undervalued and underused. Yeah, I mean technology, and I can I can talk to this. I have a history there in learning. I've been the chief learning officer for IBM for a number of years, uh, and I've, I've I've taken this role, by the way, not because I had a background in in learning and education. Uh, but I was passionate about it. I felt this is what I want to do. And I, I spent a number of years really to immerse myself into this subject uh, because I, I've, it's such an exciting and important subject for the future of humanity, if you will. And so, so I was, when I was responsible in IBM for this subject, 
uh, it was the time when the uh, term e-learning has been invented, right? It was really the yeah. time when somebody came up and people are sort of uh, still not on the same page when it comes who has really started with this. Uh, but I remember one friend who sadly uh, passed away, I think four years, three, four years ago, Jay Cross. And he was in Silicon Valley, I think, Jay. Yes, Jay was a very good friend. So you know him? And Jay yeah. was the one who told me, well, I, I believe I was the first one, right? I just <laughs> mentioned it as an anecdote. And uh, because I really want to give a thought uh, to Jay when we, uh, when we talk about the subject. So um, when, when I took this step from a line management and line executive position to the learning role in IBM, um, there was this big movement we have to use technology now to you know massively increase and expand what we can do in learning and so i i went through all the pain and hype that was happening at the time i mean in the meantime a lot has been written about but it was this idea which again didn't take into account the human being it was the idea well you don't need to have a course you put it just online and people will take it online and, and, and the, you know, this came back late, later uh, with, the, um, uh, with the online video capabilities and etc. But it was, it was there already. Nobody gave much thought about the learning process of the individual, the questions of formal and informal learning. Jay was very, very good at that. Jay brought this idea of informal learning. He made it very popular right yes. uh, he was really the guy behind it so uh, and and without understanding what explicit knowledge what tacit knowledge means what experiential learning means kolb's work about the learning cycle which is extremely valuable so even today uh, all this was brushed aside and we thought we have technology and now we implement the technology and we just bump everything on technology and i think this is a metaphor almost this whole e-learning story, how things can go wrong. And I believe we are in the same situation today where we, we have a technology and we think, well, it can do this. And then we just do it and we don't take into account the human side because we still don't try to understand what the human being really is all about. Yes, and I, I, I think that this is a wonderful area of um, exploration Richard, because Peter Drucker was, as you say, focused on the human being first. Uh, and uh, certainly in my industry, when we looked at marketing, Peter Drucker looked at the client-centered, the customer-centered organization as essential, understanding the human being and empathy with the human being. Uh, so how do you see the education, the e-learning that was perhaps not done well in the beginning. Do you see that evolving? Do you see a, a way yeah. that it can be used so that um, that scale can be done, but in a human, more human way? Oh, yes, absolutely. I think it was a, <laughs> it was a learning process in itself. But, uh, uh, I mean, think about it, how long we are dealing with this subject, yeah, and how long it took uh, to really... 
understand how you can effectively use technology to enhance, improve, uh, you know, scale up learning. Ah, that took a while because when 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 I was responsible for for this subject, it was around, uh, you know, it was in in nineteen ninety. Um, six, I think we started with uh, this e-learning movement, if I may say so. So, uh, and now uh, I'm talking to, um, because I, I was also at the time chairman of the European Learning Industry Group. So I, I kept my connection to this learning field uh, also with international bodies that were established in the context of the European Union. So I, I, I kept close to it. And I, I was still seeing, you know, during the last 10, 10 years, how much companies were struggling to effectively use uh, technology. But I can see gradually during the last year, years, this is really improving now. This is really getting better because it's much better understood how you need to work in this, you know, how to blend in the right way the human intervention and the technology. Um, at the end, I mean, the, in, in business, the first idea that everybody has when it comes to technology, oh, we can cut costs. Wonderful. We take out 10%, 20% of the education budget because this is the mean, you know, to reduce the, uh, in the education in the classroom and people should sit in front of the screen and they can take their courses. That's the first point that comes up. And... Uh, now they found out the really effective e-learning courses are those where you have a very significant human interaction involved. And today you have the technologies to do that because with video technology, with audio, uh, with instant messaging, with all sorts of group uh, support technology, I mean, you can do much more. When, when, when it started, it was like, okay, you put things online in a fairly simple, and at best you had a video to click on, right? So there's, there's progress. I have no doubt, and I have no doubt that there's huge potential in it, but uh, it, it is always, uh, you have to go really through this whole hype cycle. It was the classic hype cycle that we just were going through, and it, it took almost, uh, almost 20 years if you take it all together. Yes. Um, th there's one other topic, um, if I may, that I, I want to ask you about because you're vice chair of the Open Innovation Strategy and Policy Group, and open innovation is a very hot topic. Can you talk a little bit about open innovation as you see it um, and, and what that implies for uh, entrepreneurs and people all over the world to do, to participate in a global innovation, open innovation marketplace, if that's what you're thinking. Uh, but I'd like to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, it's a, uh, it's a more open world in, in some way. And despite all the concerns about, uh, you know, trade wars and, and uh, nationalism, nationalism, I don't think that the world will close down again because there are so many connections uh, that are there. And, and by the way, if somebody looks in detail, and Pankaj Gemawat has done that with his research on globalization, um, we have a long way to go until, until we are really a globalized, uh, a globalized world. We have, we have done first steps, but Pankaj Gemawat has shown 
that uh, this is not yet so advanced as, as some people would, would think and would feel it. Uh, but going back to the open innovation, of course, got a boost by technology as well. Uh, because with, uh, with technology, you have completely different means of involving others in, in initiatives or you know, sourcing ideas from, from people, continents, uh, from, from institutes that you, you couldn't be in touch with even in the past. So I think this whole movement of a more open world, of more interconnection, as you, you are very familiar with, um, is, leads naturally to opportunities in the field of innovation uh, where, you know, in, in dependent on the fields, you can get valuable inputs, uh, you can have exchanges, you can learn, because there's a lot of learning uh, involved, you can create prototypes in a completely different way, share it with others, learn from users, move on. I mean, all these new ways of experimenting, involving others, learning from it, and, and, and then finally having an innovation that, uh, that spreads. I mean, all this is in a more open space than having it happening in, in, in the confines of a lab, right? Of a closed lab. Yes. Having said that, I would still say it would be naive to think that all innovation has to be open. I think that would be grossly naive. A lot of innovation is not open and cannot be open because it provides the lifeblood for companies who would give right. away, away the essence of what they have put in during years of research and of experimentation and of trials. So I think, um, like always, it's not black and white. It's not open innovation or closed innovation. It's both. You have a spectrum on the left closed, on the right open, and then you have a way you know, you see what is applied for what it depends, what is appropriate. But I think during the last 20 years, the share of open innovation has certainly soared. I don't have numbers, but that's what I, I believe and what we can in some way observe. Yes. And, you know, when you go into any of the IBM uh, research laboratories, like at Almaden that you're familiar with and that I visit frequently, you see the globe and you see where the IBM research centers are. and They're located all over the world in Israel and Japan, et cetera, because they're tapping into the collective intelligence that exists. And even within the IBM system, there is this interconnectivity that, that's quite impressive as, as people work with one another. And then, of course, working in partnerships with other research institutes. And that may be proprietary to IBM, but it is clearly a global interconnectedness, I, I presume. Yeah, no, no, I think they are, they are both. Uh, I think in IBM it's the same. There are areas which are highly protected for good reasons, and there are areas very open. There are areas where basic research is partly happening in IBM, partly at universities. IBM is in, uh, I, I think IBM is still outstanding in the field of, uh, of research. That has been a strength throughout IBM's history. And you can still see that today. And if there will be major breakthroughs in quantum computing, I would guess that IBM will have a major role in it. Excellent. So um, 
Richard, uh, this is the last question. Um, you've been very generous with your time. Um, what are the most important management and ethical issues you believe we should be concerned with moving forward? I know that the conference that you are um, you are putting on in in Vienna is going to deal with some of these issues. So uh, perhaps you can talk a little bit about the major or most important management and ethical issues moving forward. Yes, I mean the. You know, the theme of ethics is, of course, a very, a very difficult one. And, and uh, since we, uh, we refer to Drucker in many ways, uh, Peter Drucker was quite cautious talking about ethics. Uh, for him, uh, what, he, what he always referred to uh, was the uh, Hippocratic Oath, right? Uh, this was, for him, a foundation. Yeah, that in uh, how people should generally think. Um, that was uh, something that uh, he mentioned many times. And the other aspect that he showed, uh, where it's getting maybe a bit more concrete, is when in his ideas about the pluralistic society, uh, because it was clear already uh, in, in uh, as long I mean, Drucker has passed away. End of. 2005, so it's not so long ago, but um, the, the difficulties of a, of a pluralistic society were already visible, right? There were so many uh, different uh, groupings with their value systems, right? You, uh, and, and you see it almost to the extreme today. You have, you have uh, different ideas about quite fundamental questions in society what values you should apply, right? And what, uh, what, what are their, you know, what are the common values? And I think the, the, the interesting point that Drucker made, and that is quite relevant for today's discussion is that he said, if you have a pluralistic society, um, it can only survive if it finds a common base of values. He didn't say exactly which values. We know on which ground Drucker stood. I mean, it was not a secret. Uh, Drucker was a Christian. His family was originally Jewish, but um, his, his father, who worked for the emperor in, in, in Austria, in old, in the Habsburg monarchy, uh, he, he was taking on the Christian faith, and Drucker was Christian. So he was personally standing on the um, you know principles of the Christian faith, but that doesn't mean he didn't he didn't preach that, but he understood that values and the base a common base of values where the human being is in the center and where the dignity and the uniqueness of the human being is safeguarded is essential. That's a beautiful statement, and I can't think of a better conclusion than that. I really appreciate this time, Richard. I look forward to some time uh, meeting personally. I know that this interview is conducted. You're in Paris, and I'm yes, in, yes. In, uh, in the San Francisco Bay Area, but uh, this has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much, and good luck in all your future endeavors. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye.